Let's continue worshiping this morning with the reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 2 and also from Romans chapter 3. As you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. There's something about the public reading of God's word. Um, Yeah. Good morning. I'm I'm Chris. Uh, Welcome to church. I'm glad you're with us. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're new Uh, Welcome. This is um, our last week in a conversation that we've just called Formed by the Gospel. And so we've looked over the past month or so um, at the Gospel, kind of from this 30,000-foot perspective. But we didn't want to walk away from spending time um, looking at that before we looked at how that uh, perspective of the Gospel forms us. It's supposed to impact us in some way. Some of us are, you know, like, I'm not quite sure how. Scott did a phenomenal job last week, if you're with us, um, on how the gospel is intended to form us, asking, he, he asked last week, basically, what are you agreeing with in your life? Are you agreeing with what the gospel says? Are you agreeing with darkness or some impoverished view of yourself, right? And it was really fantastic food for thought. If you didn't listen, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. But today, as we cap off the conversation... I'll be exploring the same topic, um, how does the gospel form us, uh, but from a different angle. And I want to approach it from two questions that are going to anchor us today, okay? The first question is, how does the gospel form us as a narrative? And the second question is, how does it form us as righteousness? I've, I've chosen those words carefully. How does it form us as narrative? How does it form us as righteousness? Um, which I think is really going to help some of us today, maybe, with some of the specific claims um, of the gospel. So first... How does it form us as narrative? Um, what we said week one, the gospel story. So, you, you know, if you've not been with us, you have to kind of wrestle with what that word means. 
Uh, we've, we've teased that out over the past month. But the gospel, one of the central claims of the gospel is that it is narrative. It's a story, right? It's a story that's rooted in historical setting amongst a real people. And the claim, the claim is that that story is the one true story of all the cosmos. That's the claim of the gospel. It's massive. It's expansive. It's saying that that's the one true reality. That's the one true narrative from which all other narratives spring. That's the claim of the gospel, right? And we've come on the scene, right? After, you could say, if you kind of want to put it in the, the terminology of a battle, if the gospel is a battle, okay, if that story is a battle, we've come on the scene after the fiercest and most triumphant battle. And we find ourselves in the story after the victory has been won. Yet, before the king claims for himself what he won in that battle, fully. That's where me and you come on the scene. What's the full um, claim that he gets from his victory? All things made new. We live in that tension. That's where we've come on the scene. We're in a season of the cosmos of great tension. It's already, but it's not yet. He's won, y'all. Like he said, it is finished, right? And yet we live amongst death, sorrow, sin. All the things he said he defeated are still reality for us. Does that not create some tension in you? When you try to be, what does it mean to be a person of faith in the already not yet? Tim Mackey uh, likens it to the time in between when a president wins an election and his inauguration. Did you know there's about a two-month time in between that, that, that season, right? When the president wins an election, I hesitate to bring up politics at all, even as an example, but in between that time, right? And so, so he's the guy, like he's the guy, but not yet. Now imagine a civil war in between that season. When he's been chosen, like he got the victory. He earned it, man. He did the deal. But he's not in full control of that fullness yet, right? You, I hesitate. The control is probably the wrong word. But that's kind of our cosmic position, right? So when we talk about being formed by the gospel, by the narrative of the gospel, we are talking about al allowing God's story to swallow up and overshadow your little story. That's what we mean. In some ways, when we talk about the narrative of the gospel forming the narrative of your life, it means we see our life, our story, your story. You have a story, a significance, a past, a history, all these events, where you've come from, where, you're, where you are, where you're going. It means that we see all of that now in relation to and within the framework of God's larger story. And it's a beautiful freedom if we can get, get into it. But why narrative? Why, why does he choose to engage us in this way? Why not a rule book? Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't like a recipe instruction booklet be better? Like here's the things you need. Here's how you mix them together. Here's the exact, like or an instruction manual. I mean, the guys would throw it away, right? But the girls, like if, if we just had an instruction manual for life, wouldn't that, and isn't that some of our perspectives of the Bible? And yet that's not what the Bible is. The Bible's not a list of rules. It has lists of rules in there. The Bible is a story primarily about a people. It's a story. It's a narrative. Y'all, uh, Jesus, guess what he used when he taught 
story. The kingdom of God's like a man who found a treasure in a field. And when he noticed that that treasure was worth more than he had ever seen, he went and he sold everything he had so he could buy that field to have the right, the real legitimate right to that treasure. Mic drop. Some of us are confused. Some of us don't know what to make of it. We're like, who's the hero? Where's the, where's the conflict resolution? I didn't, and yet that's how Jesus taught. He's taught in narrative. He taught in stories. Because I think he knew that every time you watch a movie, every time you hear a story, it works on you in ways that a list or an instruction manual or a rule book cannot. Every time you watch a movie, every time you hear a story, it works on you. It's doing something to you. Now, it's often subconscious, which is why we don't recognize it. But it's doing something to you. Every movie maker in Hollywood knows this, okay? I mean, you're propaganda. <laughs> you're, you're like, the main read. You know, okay, so we'll get back to this. But here's how story narrative works on you, okay? It, number one, it engages your imagination. Rule book cannot do that. It is, but while it's doing that, number two, Every story, any movie you've ever watched, asserts assumptions about how the world works. And that's really what gets at us at this subconscious level. Every story you've ever heard asserts assumptions about what is ultimately true. It, it, it's an assertion. It's not an argument. It does not try to persuade you. It just asserts it. <laughs> this is how the way it works, right? And number three, you will automatically locate yourself in that story. You can't help it. You're just going to locate stuff. So what's all this mean? So story and narrative gets in your imagination, in your heart, in a way that simple commands can't. See, I could sit here and argue with you. Hey, listen. Hey, guys, listen. Hey, don't have extramarital affairs. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. Quit. <laughs> That's not very effective, is it? This is, I, can just, I can just sit here and just tell you what you ought to do. Or I could tell you about a story of a guy who fell into it like an animal falls into a trap. And it cost him his life. I could tell you about a naive fool. Once, and, once upon a time, there was a naive fool who followed the seductive, rebellious woman. And he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. He was caught like a stag in a trap, awaiting the arrow to pierce his heart. That fool was caught like a bird flying into a snare, little knowing it would cost him his life. I just read you Proverbs 7. That's, that's how the Bible talks to us in story, in metaphor, in simile, right? This is the power of story. It, it engages your imagination and it works on you in a different way. That's one example of many we could spend the whole time looking to. But it often opens our eyes to a position. It clarifies what that position is. See, now, adultery, if you were with us, if you were paying attention, it's not a um, fanciful pursuit of pleasure and joy and freedom. What that just did, that introduced a framework in which adultery is like a wild animal caught in a trap waiting for death. That's asserting assumptions about how the world works. And it's doing it through your imagination. Okay? So think of the prophet Nathan. When he confronts David about his sin, 
How does he confront him? He tells him a story. When, Nathan, when, when David committed adultery, which is interesting because that's what we wrote in Proverbs 7, right? When, when David committed adultery and killed a man to cover it up, military, military political conspiracy to cover his tracks, Nathan confronts him and he tells him a story about a rich man who had many sheep. He said, that rich man had many, many sheep, herds and herds of sheep. And when, he was, when a guest was visiting him, that rich man, instead of taking one of his many sheep and slaughtering it to feast, he stole his neighbor's beloved sheep. His neighbor was a poor man, had one sheep. That sheep loved him. He loved that sheep, his beloved sheep. <laughs> he stole that man's sheep and slaughtered him for his guest. And Nathan said, what should be done? And, and David burned with wrath. He said, as surely as the Lord lives, that man should die. And then Nathan says the famous line, you are the man. See, he explained to him a position that David himself didn't know he was in. And he needed to see that position from, a, from another story, from someone else's perspective. And then, he, and then all of a sudden, reality said, right? that's how the Bible often gets at us. Okay, so every time you hear a story, every time you watch a movie, it's making claims also about what is right and wrong by the way it tells the story, right? So this is how it does it. You immediately, every time you hear a story, you're asking this question, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy? And the whole story is refining your understanding of what good guys do and what bad guys do. This is what it means to be a good guy. This is what it means to be a bad guy, right? This is how good guys act. This is how bad guys, and really good stories, you're like, oh, I don't know. Who is it? Like really, really good stories, you know? You're like, I don't know who's the good guy. You're like, the intrigue and discovery, that's how it like, draws you in, right? But whether we know it or not, it's presenting to you a view of the world. This is what it means to be a good guy. This is what it means to be a bad guy. And Hollywood's done this for years, right? Uh, the primary way to try to shape culture, y'all, <laughs> is not through legislation. It's through movies. Amen. It's through stories, right? From Nazi propaganda reels, to today, narrative is formative, and movie makers know it, right? Because we're drawn into the story, and as we're drawn into it, we're drawn into their way of looking at the world. It is making assumptions about how the world works, right? And it often does it by engaging your imagination and bypassing your defenses, right? As it establishes a framework, it engages our imagination. So uh, as a philosophical aside, for, for you a little more, okay, this is why postmodern secular thinkers use the term narrative to mean a truth claim. I don't know if you're, okay. Uh, just this week, I heard a police chief saying, there's a lot of narratives about what happened. Now, what, what is he saying? I'm kind of contrasting what I'm, what I'm using when I use the word narrative, and I'm giving you a different definition of the word narrative. When he says, there's a lot of narratives about what happened, he's saying, there's a lot of different perspectives. That, that's how postmodern, secular, post-truth people use the word narrative. So in the postmodern thought, any truth claim is simply your narrative that you're using to try to assert your authority over the situation. It is not true because in the postmodern secular thinking, there is no truth. Therefore, all narratives are simply your way of trying to say, this is what's true and that's not what's true. And my narrative is more important than your narrative because why? I'm not sure. It's based in something great. And they dismiss all truth claims and say all narratives are only paragraphs, right? And of course, there's plenty of examples 
of broken humanity using narratives, right, as power grabs. They have, I mean, oppression, right? There's plenty of examples of that. But postmodern thinkers um, say, therefore, since our narrative is just your own personal perspective, there is no one true narrative in the universe. There is no one true truth, right? So instead of searching, therefore, instead of searching for what is true, they just dismiss truth as a category. Sometimes that's a little bit easier, right? But of course, what they fail to see is when they say there is no overarching truth in the cosmos, they are asserting an overarching truth of the cosmos, that there is no overarching truth, and they're doing the exact same thing, right? The idea that there is no one true narrative is itself a narrative, <laughs> and they're using that as a way of looking at things. But that's an aside. Okay, let's get back to the thing. All right, right. my point is story narratives, they engage our imagination in a way that simple rules or naked ideas or uh, instructional books that can't, but nevertheless make claims and assumptions about the world. But the best part of every narrative is we will always, always locate ourselves in the story. And sometimes, if we're honest, it surprises us, just like it did David, right? But in every good story, every good movie, we immediately begin to relate to the characters and the circumstances, right? So if someone is afraid, we think, I've been afraid before. I know how that feels. And we vicariously get to live that anxiety. This is why people love scary movies, right? They like that feeling, of, they like the adrenaline rush of being terrified out of their minds. I don't get it, right? Or someone gets betrayed in a story, right? Or, or someone feels righteous anger in a story. We say, I know how that feels. <laughs> All my anger is righteous, right? Um, and we, we get to vicariously participate in emotions and thrills that are not our own. That's part of story. That's why we love stories, because we find ourselves in them, right? So if someone's brave, we think, I've been brave. Or if we're more honest, I want to be brave like that. That's admirable, right? And every guy in every story immediately relates to the hero. Like we, we can't, like we may be total cowards, no heroic traits, can't walk up a flight of stairs without getting winded. But if ninjas attacked our neighborhood, man, I'd be spin kicking them in the back of the head with a samurai sword, shirtless, right? Right? Like, like okay, bro. Like, you can't even look your neighbor in the eye after you blow leaves in his yard. But if aliens invaded, you'd be hijacking an alien ship, shooting them down, wouldn't you, right? That's why we love story. We find ourselves in the story, and we get to vicariously live another person's victory, vicariously live another person's bravery, right? Ladies, man, you just relate to the beauty. You can't help it. The beauty, right? You relate to the heroine, the strong, faithful, noble woman, right, who fights just as much, if not more, right, than the man, right? But... The problem with the Bible, and even some of Jesus' parables, like we mentioned, is it's not always clear who the hero is. And that leaves it kind of difficult for us sometimes, because, I mean, we're if you're anyone, we're the hero, right? right? And, and so, so take Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. If you read that parable, there's, there's not, both sons blow it. That's not a moral tale. That's not lifting up one is moral and the other is not. Both of them blow it right? Even the Old Testament, y'all, we tend to think of the Old Testament as moral tales that we should exemplify, don't we? Be like David, be like Moses, be like Abraham. But if you read the story, dude, Abraham lied about his wife twice and gave her to other men <laughs> to save his own skin because she was pretty. Are you supposed to be like that? There's parts of David where you're like, oh, as a warrior, man. Oh, kill Goliath. I'll get into that, you know? 
Then he commits adultery, military, political conspiracy. Tells his military leader, take this woman's husband in the middle of the battlefield and then retreat. So the enemy falls upon him and he's killed. Are we supposed to mimic that? See, the story, the story of the Bible confronts us. If you really read it and you realize these people aren't examples in some places they are. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all horribly flawed men. In some ways, they, they have these triumphant, victorious moments. And we might say, yeah, we should be like, we should be like Abraham and trust. And then other moments, well, not totally like Abraham, right? And so we have to ask the question then. If you're reading the Bible with your brain on, which I'm not admitting, all right? But if you're reading the Bible with your brain on, you have to ask yourself, are these examples for us to follow? Or is there something else God's trying to do as we participate in their story? Is David and Goliath an example for us? Are, are we to read that story and is the moral takeaway, you're, you're David, you need to be like David, and you need to trust God, and you need to slaughter the giants in your life, right? Is, is that who we are in the story? Is, is the point to imitate David? Because we already mentioned, he, he kind of blew it, right? right? Not, not, imitate maybe that bit, but not that bit. See, that's the complicated nuance of humanity, isn't, isn't it? We, at one moment, can be such radiant, brilliant, courageous creatures of self-sacrifice and nobility, and at the next, backstabbing adulterous murderers. What a complicated existence we find ourselves in. And we find ourselves longing for an example to follow that we can aspire to because we know something's broken in us. And yet when we read the Bible, everyone we read of broken, broken, broken. But do you know what they do? Do you know what all those characters do? They create a mental shelf space in your head. That's what I mean by that. All of those characters were not the snake crusher. You know the snake crusher that's prophesied in Genesis? None of them were the snake crusher. But you know what they did? They delineated a silhouette of what the snake crusher would do when he came. None of them made it. But we know when the snake crusher comes, when the, when the true anointed Messiah comes, he will be like David. And he will slaughter the enemy that you are terrified under. When the true Messiah comes, he will be like Moses and lead his people out of oppression and into abundance and freedom. See, all of these characters are creating in our minds, if we read it with our minds on, a silhouette of what the Messiah will do. And the Jewish people, y'all, still waiting, still waiting on the Messiah. The Christian claim is that he's come, that he has come, right? The Old Testament was doing for the Jews and for us It's showing us what the real snake crusher will do when he comes. Be like Moses at his best. Be like David at his best, right? The prophet Daniel 9.24 said, the true Messiah, the true snake crusher, he will put an end to sin. None of those guys did that. They didn't. They fell prey to the same sin. The prophet Daniel 9.24, he says, they will put an end to sin. He will put an end to sin. He will atone for iniquity and he will bring everlasting righteousness. How do we fit into this story, y'all? It's pretty clear. 
that from the beginning, humanity blew it, and no human would be the hero of the story. There's only one human who actually claimed he was God and also claimed to be the snake crusher. Or as in Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name by which we must be saved, which begs the question, how do we fit in the story, right? Where do we fit in the narrative of the gospel? And how does that therefore form us, right? Well, we are, I hate to break it to you, we are the rebels in the story who got caught up in a cause of trying to overthrow the true king. We all, all of us got swept up in arrogance and the excitement of being kings ourselves and committed mutiny against the true king. But the most surprising twist of the gospel and every other story right, which I would argue mimics the gospel, is instead of wrath and rightful punishment, someone sacrifices themselves for others. Every good story, y'all, every good story will have self-sacrifice in it. Because we know, I mean, just, just tire out, just go watch a movie and, and see if there's self-sacrifice. More than likely there will be, because we know instinctually it is the highest form of love. And we can't help but be struck by the idea that someone would abandon their self-interest for someone else's. It is completely backwards to our thinking, Right? So God, in the story of the gospel, instead of allowing our wickedness to crush us, put the weight of our wickedness on his son and crushed him. That's the gospel. And what do we get in place of that wickedness? This is where I want to pivot. We get righteousness. Part of the story, our part, your part, my part in the story of the gospel is as recipients of a rightness that you do not deserve. That's our part in the story. Our part in the story is that we get taken out of darkness and put into light. We get taken out of our wrongness and put into his rightness. Our part in the story is creatures that are redeemed and being made new to stand upright again. I just think of Gollum, you know? Can't help it. Lord of the Rings, all right? Being taken out. We've become accustomed to dwelling in darkness. We've learned how to survive in the dark and the way we fit in the narrative of the gospel is that we are redeemed out of that darkness and learn how to walk upright again, how to eat real food again, how to have real conversation, how to know real love again. That's our part in the story, and it's a daggum good part. Check this out. We, we broke the thing, right? And our recipients of God's fixing the thing at great cost to himself. We are both the reason it broke and the reason it's fixed. Because God loves us. Is that not a mind bender? We are the reason it broke and the reason it's fixed. Because it might come as a shock, but God loves you. And he sacrificed himself for you. So now, now let me pivot to righteousness. And we're not going to take near as long. Don't worry. Everyone breathe. Okay. Um, how does the gospel form us as righteousness? I heard uh, Pastor Matt Chandler talking about our understanding of what exactly the gospel offers to take from us, okay? So usually we think it is our sin. That's what the offer is, and that's true. It is, first and foremost. Jesus is offering to take your failures. That's what the, I mean, he's offering to take your darkness and your rebellion, and, and you have to give that up <laughs> to say yes to him, right? It's saying yes to him, saying no to wickedness and evil and lust and deceit and violence, right? That's the deal. It's a pretty good deal if you ask me. But we get something else when we give him our sins. We get what the Bible can tell us is we, what the scriptures we read earlier are telling us that we get his righteousness. It's, it's a righteousness that what we read earlier doesn't come by the law. 
but through Christ. And this is where it becomes confusing. Like, how does that work? We understand um, someone taking the blame, right? Can't we get that? Like, we understand someone footing the bill. Like, you had an outstanding debt. We understand how that works. And Jesus paid the debt, right? We, people have bought us, bought us dinner before, right? Or maybe someone's bailed you out of a finance thing. You understand? We, you know what a scapegoat is, right? A scapegoat. Like, someone takes the blame, right? We know that. That's the part of what Jesus did in his dying. What's harder for us to understand is how we are given a righteousness through that death as well. What does that mean? How does that form us? See, the claim of the gospel is we aren't just exchanging our sin for his righteousness. The claim of the gospel is that you are exchanging your righteousness for his righteousness. You're not just giving him the bad parts of you. You're giving him the parts you think are good, that he knows, well, it's actually not that good. (laughs) But I'm going to make my goodness cover your attempted goodness too. That's why every week we talk about Jesus' blood covering our successes and our failures. Because what we're trying to communicate is even you at your best needs the mercy of Jesus. (laughs) Even you, when you're hitting on all sixes, man, right? Kitchen's clean. Kids are in bed, right? You're just killing it, knocking it out, doing awesome work. Even that you needs the blood of Jesus. See, that's what we forget as Christians, isn't it? Right? What does this mean? Okay, here's what this means. Here's what this means. We all cling to things for value, do we not? We cling to things for value. We cling to things that we hold up to others to prove we are valuable. All right? So it's like my hairdo, right? That's what I cling to. All of you guys are jealous, aren't you? Right? No. No. You you cling to something. Got a giggle out of that one. Um, You cling to something to prove to others you are valuable. So for some of us, like I was kidding, it's your physical looks. Okay, you're an attractive person. Good for you, right? Well, what you're saying, though, is, no, I'm I'm an attractive person, therefore I cannot be wrong. That's what we do, okay? So for some of you, it's accomplishments, right? I have accomplished more than you, therefore I cannot be wrong in the world. For some of us, it's wealth, or the kind of car you drive, or the kind of house you live in. Clearly, right? Someone who's on the wrong side of life wouldn't own that house, right? That's what we say. For religious people, it's um, the kind of authors they read or the kind of theology they subscribe to the kind of church or the kind of podcast they listen to or the rules they follow. And they hold up stuff like that to other, obviously you got to be in the club, you know, because you hold that up. Someone's not in the club. They're going to be like, who cares? You're dummy, you know? But if you hold it up, some, hold that up. Someone's in the club. Oh, they're going to think you're cool. And now they know, oh, you listen to the right podcast. So you can, you're right. You have value. You read, oh, you read that. Am I, oh, I feel like I'm touching on some, my stuff on toes right now. I feel like I am, right? They, they hold up stuff like, Christians hold up stuff like that to prove their rightness, right? To prove they're in the right standing in the world or on the right part of the, uh, of the issue. They think rightly on the issue, right? Just social media, it's all we're doing, right? Just, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Okay. The Bible calls that law. The Bible calls that law. And it's what most Christians attempt to rely on to prove they are right. Right? I don't do drugs, <laughs> right? But I don't do that stuff, right? I'm valuable. But what the gospel offers is a righteousness apart from the law. What does that mean? Right? Well, it means a whole lot. But what it must mean is the one thing we know is one of the ways the gospel forms us is by changing our understanding of our own source of value and rightness as a person. 
Let me say that again. One of the ways the gospel forms us is by changing your understanding of your source of value and rightness as a person. Scripture calls it an alien righteousness. And it means that in order to grab hold of God's rightness, you have to let go of your own perceived rightness that you've tried to establish by different means, by obeying the law, by doing the right thing. So Matt Chandler says, this is how we should preach the gospel, actually. You probably heard up growing, you probably heard up, grew up, where it was, you probably grew up hearing the gospel proclaimed like this. You ready? All oh, you wicked, lying, lusting, gossiping sinners, repent. Repent from your wickedness. Right? You probably heard up. Did you anyone? You heard it? You grew up hearing that, right? Repent from searching for life in sin. Right? This is a problem. You say that to a room of Christians. And most of them are like, I'm good. <laughs> Check. Good, right? Guess I don't need Jesus. I got everything pretty tuned in, pastor. You can speak louder for the guys in the back, right? But part of the gospel that Christians need to hear is what it means to exchange our righteousness for his righteousness. And the gospel call that most of the people that go to church need to hear is this. All you good Bible-reading, church-attending, small-group-leading Christians. All you who listen to the right podcast and go to the right churches and sing the right songs and have never done drugs. Repent. Repent from trusting in your own righteousness. Repent from thinking you could gain back by obedience what you've lost by sin. Repent from thinking you are better than anyone else. Because what the gospel does is it flattens the playing field. No one got out clean. Not even, da not even Abraham. Not even David. <laughs> His last name's Abraham. And he just said, watch it. Repent from thinking you could ever gain back by obedience what you lost. But it's, it's impossible. Sin broke you. It broke you. And every attempt to clean it off is just going to smudge it on your face more. Because your hands are dirty too. The call of the gospel, the formative power of the gospel that most Christians need to hear is repent for using your religion to establish your worth. So you could look down your nose at others. Instead, abandon every attempt to make yourself righteous in the eyes of God and cling to the complete, sufficient, finished work of Jesus. Hmm? Scripture is clear, y'all. Even our righteous deeds, like filthy rags, and I ain't even gonna interpret the original Hebrew because it'll gross you out. Just go look up Isaiah 64, 6 and look at it interlinear and I'll let you figure that out on your own because it's disgusting what the word for filthy rags is there. Well, how do we live when the burden to prove your value has been lifted? Huh? How do you live when you can stop having the one goal of all of your words and deeds to prove to others that you are lovable, that you are worthy, that you are valuable? I mean, you know, so much of our time is posturing and image management, right? Imagine all the mental agility and clarity you'd gain if you weren't constantly preoccupied with overcoming your fear of not measuring up. Like fear of failure, gone. I already failed. <laughs> 
cat's out of the bag, right? Fear of rejection, gone. Insecurity, gone, right? This is what it means when Hebrew 3 and 4 is talking about entering the rest of God, right? Entering his rest means you're not striving anymore. You don't got to earn it anymore. You don't got to make your way, make yourself valuable by proving to everyone that you're cool and hip and with it. The cat's out. You're not, man. You missed it. And yet Christ's righteousness is saying, I will make you. I will give you value. I will give you significance if you will trust, right? The resistance to Christianity often boggles my mind because people think they are rejecting some overbearing, antiquated, oppressive set of rules while they are really rejecting, right, is God pronouncing over them not guilty. That's what they're really rejecting. The pronouncement of the cross is accepted, loved, forgiven, redeemed, empowered. Theologians call it imputed righteousness. But no matter how clear it is in scripture, we struggle to comprehend this. We struggle to comprehend the idea of enjoying a rightness that, is not, that we ourselves didn't establish, right? So we go on up in life, like everyone else, desperately running the rat race to establish our own value and meaning in the world, right? Because we just can't, bring ourselves to believe the claims of the gospel, that God has made us right, made us complete, fulfilled all of those things, right? What would this do to our perceptions of sin? Then we're gonna get out of here. I mean, just think about it, right? Well, it would lose its power over you because now your rightness or wrongness is no longer tied up in your ability to follow the rules. It's tied up in the finished work of Jesus. Does that make sense? Therefore, our perception of sin what a, it loses its power because that's not where my value is, whether or not I can follow the rules or not follow the rules. We can't. That's the whole thing, right? Okay, sorry. <laughs> this is how the gospel forms us in righteousness. And it's the thing that we need to hear over and over and over again, right? That he has done for us what we could never do for, in and for ourselves. This forms us because now, how does it form us? We go, well, then now, instead of using your words to make yourself look good, guess what you get to do? You get to use your words to make other people look good. That's the kind of security and freedom you get in the kingdom of God. Huh? It forms us because now we can spend all that mental energy we used to use uh, managing our reputation and now start interesting ourselves in God's reputation in the earth. Right? It forms us because now our value is no longer, your value, you want to say yes to this, your value will no longer be tied up in your skill or your intelligence or your achievement. This is the essence of true freedom in its purest form. Yeah. And it's 10 times better than living our lives escaping vicariously in fantasy, right? Because here, no, we're not talking about imaginary fantasy. We're talking about engaging in reality, right? It's a real exchange of your sin for grace. We aren't escaping in fantasy, y'all. We are submitting to true reality. And that true reality first has to condemn you before it redeems you. And that's why we resist it, isn't it, right? We don't choose it because it makes us feel good. We choose it because it's true. And there's historical claims, historical uh, reasons for us to believe this. It's not a blind faith. But what we find is as we say yes in faith, even though it calls us out on our wickedness, it also promises to cure that wickedness, right? And in the end, allow us to participate in a joy in life that death itself can't threaten, right? All other stories point to this one. All other myths point to this one. Because uh, there really is a beauty who sacrifices itself to love the beast, and in the end, it's that love of that beauty that trans transforms our beastliness back into royalty. You see how they just, they just stole the gospel. They just mimic the gospel, right? There really is one who sacrificed himself for us. There is such a thing as redemption, and we're invited into it. Stand with me, and let's pray.
Today, if um, I just want to say, man, listen, if you feel today God clarifying something to you right now in, in this moment, uh, maybe uh, for the first time hearing the offer of Christ's righteousness is something new for you. Um, if you feel like you're on the outside looking in, man, I just want to invite you to respond today. And, and after we receive communion and, and sing a song, man, come down here and let's pray. Let's pray that God would just help you walk in the newness and life of his righteousness that he wants to give you outside, apart from the law. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Um, I, just, I just thank you that what we, what, we find, what we find in the Bible is so much more nuance and intelligent than we, than we at first think. I'm just astounded by the Bible, Lord. I'm astounded by it. It just catches me by surprise every time I open it and actually engage with it. Father, I pray that, that you would help us, Lord, you would pique our curiosity um, right now, God, just to open the Bible anew and start reading this thing, man. Start engaging with it. Start reading it with our intellect and wrestling with what we're reading. I pray that you just um, entice us, Lord, um, with the complexity and the brilliance and the a promise of your word. And we would find ourselves just drawn to it, opening it in the day, opening it in the morning, in the evening, meditating on your word as we lie on our beds, Lord. I pray that it would, your word would come to us in the morning, just like you say your love does, new every morning. And your words would be the source of life and strength to us as we intend to walk this life in a way that's honorable and pleasing before you, God. Make us, make us real Christians. Maybe that's what I'm praying. Make us real Christians, God. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, God. Breathe new life into dead places. Meet us, meet us here, Jesus, in this moment now. Lead us out of darkness and into life. Lord, we confess we are all dead people being brought back to life. Do it, Lord. Breathe your life. And just like you breathed into the clay, you made man. God, would you breathe into our bodies and animate us in new ways that we could never think or imagine? God, I ask right now for the joy of the Holy Spirit. Well, I pray for for those uh, that are walking in dry and dark seasons, Lord, and they don't know if they can take the next step, I pray the joy of the Lord would be their strength. God, would you pour out faith in our hearts that we would begin to just experience what that means. What does it mean that you want your joy to be our strength? Have mercy, God.